it doesn't matter what it says on paper uh, unless it's uh, unless it's actually you know money that you can use to buy something. until you can actually translate it into something that has liquidity uh, it's still not real and I saw so many people start acting like living like believing spending their money like it was actually money that they had when it was merely paper value and the paper value can disappear very very quickly constructing your life again with this 20-year view and living in the context of the actual resources you have versus the you know on paper gains that you think you have is a much more satisfying thing because as things move around up and down, it doesn't change your fundamental behavior. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. Brad Feld is a legend in the venture industry. Brad started out as a founder of Feld Technologies, then became an angel and institutional investor, and recently also expanded his firm Foundry Group into fund investments. Amongst the many things he's known for, Brad started Techstars and was an early investor in well-known public companies such as Zynga and Fitbit. He has been one of the few investors bringing transparency to this opaque industry. In this podcast, Brad shares his thoughts on what it takes to be a good investor and fund manager. You can follow us on Twitter at BFELT and at Shruti. When I asked Brad about how Brad feels as a pioneer in the venture industry, Brad responds, I wouldn't consider myself a pioneer. Um, you know, the venture capital uh, industry and construct, you know, really started in the uh, '60s and '70s, and um, I didn't start my first business till 1987. Um, I started a, a company in '87 that I sold to a public company in 1993. And I took almost all of the money that I made from that sale, which was a couple million dollars, and invested between 1994 and 1996 in 40 companies uh, as an angel investor, kind of $25,000 to $50,000 at a time. Um, during that period, I knew nothing about investing. Um, I knew almost nothing about venture capital because my first company was uh, bootstrapped. So it was a company that never raised any money. Um, I also didn't know much about... Uh, M&A, the first transaction I was involved in was selling my own company. Um, and uh, much of what I learned and, and sort of my underlying operating principles came from that three-year period uh, where I was investing uh, very, you know, very systematically, um, but with reasonably high velocity um, in an area that I uh, I got to know extremely well, which was the rise of the commercial internet. I'd been a software person. My first company was a software company. So I was sort of around it. And as the internet was starting to emerge, um, I was completely captivated by it and uh, essentially invested in companies that had two characteristics. One were um, that I liked the founders 
and was interested in working with the founders. Uh, and the other was that I um, had an affinity for the product. I, I cared about what they were working on. And when I reflect on, you know, the 25 years now um, of doing this or 20 whatever years of doing this that I've, I've been doing it, um, I think that those two characteristics still hold for me. I invest in areas that I know well. Um, my partners and I at Foundry Group have a set of themes that we talk about that we've been talking about since we started the firm in 2007. And you know, those themes are domains that we have lots of expertise around. Um, and assuming that uh, we somebody is working on something that fits within the themes, we then spend our time deciding whether we want to be long-term partners uh, with the founders and whether we have affinity for the product. And part of the whether we want to be decision around being long-term uh, partners with the founders is bi-directional. They have to want us to be their long-term partner too. So it's it's not just that we we really want to get into the deal, it's that they really want us as their investors uh, in their company. Um, the, uh, the path for me into venture capital was uh, I was doing these angel investments. Um, I started working with, and many of the companies that I invested in went on to raise venture after they'd raised their angel round. Um, I accidentally ended up working with uh, an organization called SoftBank, which is uh, a large Japanese company that once again is very much front and center in our world because they've raised a hundred billion dollar fund and they're very actively investing that fund. And there was a group of us that included some people that worked for SoftBank uh, and then a couple of others, myself, uh, Fred Wilson, who runs USV, uh, Jerry Colonna, who now runs Reboot, but was Fred's partner at a firm called Flatiron Partners, which they created. And then a fellow named Rich Levendov. Um, and the four of us were affiliates. So we were doing deals with SoftBank, kind of putting our own money in uh, as angel or seed investors and having SoftBank participate in those early rounds alongside of us. And in this time period, which was sort of 96, 97, uh, SoftBank uh, effectively ran out of money to give to this team. And so a group of us, which included me, went and raised a fund, which originally was called SoftBank Technology Ventures, became called Mobius Venture Capital. Uh, and I woke up one day and uh, I was uh, investing as a, as a VC instead of as an angel investor. By, when I said pioneer, by the way, um, the amount of information you've shared um, and generously online has allowed me to start what I have started today, which is Array Ventures. And so I understand the venture business is old, but to me, it feels like you are one of the pioneers because you actually have put your learnings out there. And someone like me who's starting a fund now is learning every day from what you and Fred and others have put out there um, from being do from doing this for 25 years. So thank you for that. You're, you're um, welcome. And I, I, I like that. I, 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 I like that calibration. I would say um, the, the thing that's being accomplished, which is that many, many people, you know, are understanding how to do venture capital, both from the investor and entrepreneur side. Uh, it's very satisfying to hear that uh, I've had an influence on that because one of the things that was mystifying to myself and my partner, Jason Mendelson, we wrote venture deals 
I think in 2004, 2005, we wrote the, the blog post series that then led to the book that came out in 2012 or 11. Um, it's similar to what motivated Fred to blog, Fred Wilson to blog, and me to blog, which was just this opacity that existed around what venture capital was and our view that that was both a, a huge inhibitor of you know, company creation uh, in, a, in a healthy and productive way and also created this incredible information asymmetry between uh, investors and entrepreneurs where the investors sort of had like these magic secret codes uh, and, and the entrepreneurs were beholden to that, which made no sense to us because this whole uh, universe around entrepreneurship and innovation exists at the behest of the entrepreneurs, not the investors. And so this sort of notion that uh, we've been able to, through you know, our participation and being very public about how things work and how we think about them, knowing that we're often wrong as well. So it's a continual learning process for me uh, is, is really rewarding. So thank you. As you know, the venture business is shifting and there's newer and newer kind of uh, VCs that are emerging, genderless, thesis driven. Something you said was you like to invest in what you know. Um, and what you know probably has changed over 25 years of you investing. As you said, commercial internet was the beginning of it. And it's, and then from there on, you've done Fitbit and Zynga and all these other companies. How has your thinking evolved from you starting to think through it from your angel investing days, SoftBank days to now? Well, so I'd separate it into two different, uh, two different categories. One is how I think about what I want to invest in. And second, how uh, technology and innovation evolves over time. Because I think they, I, they're very linked, but I think they're, they're separate constructs. Um, for me, when I go back to when I first started playing around with computers in the late, late uh, 1970s when I was a teenager, and I look at the arc from them to today, um, and you know, just sort of reflect. It's unbelievably dramatic how many different things have changed, and how many different uh, companies have been created, and how many different foundational technologies, you know, were successful for some period of time, and then ultimately eclipsed by something else. So, this endless evolution of the technology on you know, all dimensions, hardware, software, infrastructure, networking, whatever, doesn't matter, uh, is, is continuous and endless. And when I project forward you know, for the balance of my life, let's hope it's you know, plenty of years. I like to say I'd love to live to be about 190 years old, but- We hope so. Uh, you know, assuming, <laughs> assuming, assuming I have you know, another 20 or 30 good years in me. Um, the, the dynamics around innovation uh, in this in this sphere that I participate in, both uh, the evolution of existing technologies and then the step function creation of totally new things, I think will continue unabated. I have no concern about about that. So that then allows me to sort of sit in the context of that and say, these areas that are really interesting to me that I have developed some real expertise around. Uh, as long as I have a long enough term view on what's interesting and I don't anchor myself to old technologies, 
right? As new things evolve, I continue to explore and engage in those new things. Um, I'll never run out of stuff to uh, invest in. And it allows me then on the first category, which is what I led with, is allows me to really focus on the people that I want to work with and the thing that they're obsessed about creating. And I don't have to be a daily user of the thing that they're obsessed about creating, but I have to have affinity for it. I have to understand it. I have to get it um, and I have to want to work on it. And part of that comes from, you know, when I reflect back uh, to, you know, the mid 90s. Um, and think about you know the hundreds of investments that I've made, and I don't know what the number is at this point. Um, there are lots of them. When I re- when I look at the thing, I'm like, wow, I I really didn't have any interest in the product. I didn't have any interest in what that company was actually aspiring to do. And as a result, my ability to engage and be helpful as an investor uh, was much lower, and my desire to you know to work through things that were challenging, which is inevitable, were much lower. So I've really tried to limit the universes of which I uh, spend my time in. And every now and then, you know, I'll go play in something brand new that's totally different just to see if I like it or not. And occasionally I do. And more often than not, I I get a taste of it and decide, okay, that was interesting, but it's not something I want to commit the next 20 years of my activity around. So it's, it's really sort of separating those two, having the backdrop and belief that we're on uh, an, an unrelenting, endless path of innovation and you know, technology creation, which drives opportunity. And on the other side of the equation, um, focusing my energy on people and products that I want to spend time with. For an enterprise investor, I feel that, do you have a sense of how one stays fresh there and continues to know the area that they like um, that investing in in the enterprise world? Yeah, I think that if if you focus on enterprise specifically, I think if you have no experience working in enterprises or doing, you know, building products for enterprises and subsequently having customers who are enterprises, I think it's ex- extremely hard um, because it's just, you just can't relate to the dynamics of what those organizations are. I think if you've had that experience, and again, it doesn't have to be building products for it, or and it also doesn't have to be working in large enterprises, but it has to be engaging in some way with them. Um, The key is to continue that engagement, continue to spend real time as an investor with those types of companies as you're making investments in new companies. Uh, There was a really powerful phenomena that occurred, um, I don't remember the timeframe, let's say 2008, 9, 10, somewhere in there, which was essentially this notion of uh, the consumerization of the enterprise, I think was the phrase that became Mm -hmm. hip and trendy. And the idea was that for many, many years, enterprise technology and what you found in corporations led what consumer technology looked like, what you found in the home. And all of a sudden, around this time period, what you had in the home was dramatically better than what you had in your office. So the stuff that you got to do on your, you know, on your Mac at your kitchen table, uh, whether you're using Facebook or Twitter or you know, even the online online mail packages that you were using, Gmail or, or, or Yahoo Mail, were so much better than your operating experience in your office uh, and, and the software that you used within the enterprise, not just email, um, not just browsing the web, but actual functional systems. Uh, you know, your online banking was so much better than whatever your expense processing system was uh, at work. And, you know, this big shift of, 
all of a sudden the consumerization of the enterprise, which in many cases was quite powerful, but in a lot of cases didn't really work because a lot of those companies had no idea how to engage with uh, or sell into um, these large enterprises. The ones that had either investors and or founders that did were very, very successful. The ones that had exciting products that then built teams that had that kind of expertise were successful. But the ones that just kind of looked at it and said, well, you know, of course they'll want it because our product is better. Uh, uh, you know, we're not successful. So my advice there is just, if you're going to be in a domain, live in it and spend time in it and, and keep on over a long period of time, just because you haven't worked in a large company for a decade doesn't mean you don't know how large companies function. Um, but if you haven't spent any time with a large company in a decade, it's very, very hard to say, well, I'm an expert at that. You were an expert at that 10 years ago, but maybe today you don't know anything about it. So the other piece you mentioned, you want, you want to invest in people who also want to work with you. Is that true for every type of investor or just a lead investor? Well, I don't think that the statement, I only want to invest in people that want to work with me is a, is a canonically true statement across investors. So one of the things I say regularly is, is don't think of a VC as a singular archetype. Think of them as, I like to use Dungeons and Dragons characters because it's for old people, they get it. And for younger people, it makes them look it up and have to learn some history. Um, <laughs> but, but the essence of it is that each individual investor is different. And firms, which have uh, reputations and have archetypes as a firm, they're often collections of different types of investors that you know, and a functional firm has a clear value system and in a dysfunctional firm of which there are many doesn't. Um, so when you're thinking about who you're going to work with, or when I think about who I'm going to work with, um, I'm mostly focused on first the founders. Um, and I'm less worried about the investors because if the founders have investors who we don't have affinity for, or don't want to work with, or have had a bad experience with, or who have a bad interaction dynamic with, and we're investing in a case where there's already existing investors, that will color whether or not we want to work with those particular founders. If we're the first investors in a company, or there really aren't any other institutional investors in the company yet, um, we tend to have a reputation that a number of investors like to work with, and some probably don't. So there's a group of other investors who, who value our participation. And that evolves nicely over time. So in both of those cases, by focusing on the founders rather than worrying too much about the other investors in the mix, uh, I think we, we end up getting uh, better decisions and better, uh, better information from our frame of reference. I'd also say that we're very open to working with people we've never worked with before. So one of my deeply held beliefs is that the only way you really learn about what somebody's about is to do something with them. And until you do, it's just talk. And, um, you know, once you've had uh, a bad experience with somebody, um, that's no fun, but at least you've learned. And mm -hmm. if you have a good experience, a systematically good experience with somebody, then, you know, you're going to want to continue to work with that person. Well, we'd love to find ways to work together, Brad. <laughs> always, always welcome. You know, how to, you, know, you, you know how to find me and I'll always respond. To you. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you have now shifted from angel investing venture to now actually investing in fund managers. Do you think of the fund managers, which the way you put it is with the collection of different individuals, um, 
to be, you find yourself evaluating the, them the same way as you evaluate companies um, and company founders? Um, or what is your framework around there? No, it's very different. And it's, it's one of the reasons why we added um, our largest investor, uh, Lyndall Ekman, to our team. So Lyndall uh, joined Foundry Group about two years ago, and he had previously uh, been uh, the head of the alternatives program at University of Texas, which is called Utimco. And uh, they were uh, investors in all of our funds and owned about 20% of our funds. So we had developed a very, very close relationship with Lyndall, um, both personally and professionally. Um, we've been investing in venture funds going back to the 1990s, uh, probably late 90s. I think the first one I invested in was in 1997. And um, in many cases, uh, you know, we were very early investors in first-time funds with new managers who have gone on to be very successful. And we've got plenty of in investments in firms that uh, you know, evolved from what they were when we made that first investment. Um, but many more of them, uh, you know, firms like... Uh, uh, Union Square Ventures and um, and Canine, uh, you know, all firms that you know we'd invested at the very very beginning. Softech would be another one like that. So, what we realized as a firm before Lindell joined us was we were making these investments in other funds. We were choosing them based on the people primarily, but we didn't really have a strategy. It was very reactive. And then our our interaction with um, the VCs with the managers was also very reactive. Um, you know, there are many places where we could be specifically helpful either with their portfolio or with firm management issues. And if somebody called us, we of course, you know, responded. Um, but if they didn't call us, then we, we, we weren't proactive about engaging. Um, Lindell, on the other hand, given his uh, experience, had a very clear view of what he wanted to invest in and how he chose investments. And collectively, we've worked together um, uh, to build off of both of those frames of references. When I look at it today, I think our evaluation around uh, companies is very different than our evaluation around funds, because in a lot of cases with funds, uh, it's very, very hard to, especially a first-time fund, uh, or even a second-time fund where the first-time fund hasn't had any liquidity yet, it, it's hard to evaluate the actual product per se, right? The, you know, there's lots of different ways to talk about what a VC's product and what a VC's customer is, but ultimately that product is deeply embedded with their relationship with the founders that they work with. And if the companies are still relatively early in their curve, uh, it's very hard to get a good understanding of that. You can get you know, positive references and you know, occasionally get negative references, but it's hard to build a, a clear point of view. Um, it's also the case that many, many first-time funds um, evolve, right? They, they start with a small amount of capital and do some investments. I mean, I think about my own history, right? I made a couple million dollars worth of angel investments. And then, you know, as part of a, a venture team that made a couple hundred million dollars worth of investments over the course of a year. And then, all of a sudden, we raised a three hundred million dollar fund, and like the tempo and the types of investments I was making went from twenty five thousand dollar investments to million dollar investments to all of a sudden a ten million dollar investment wasn't that unusual. So you know that that tempo is different on the fund side versus uh, a typical founder who's who's building her business. 
but what 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 is that? So you've as we you know we touched on a little bit of ventures changing and there's newer and newer managers. Like I can, I you know since I'm a new manager, I probably meet like at least one or two new managers every week. Uh, always someone very smart, someone who has really good network, um, with good access in the areas that they're looking to invest in. It must be very hard for uh, an investor in funds to, without, a, as you say, a product, right? Like in more like a relationship, it's founders kind of a business to uh, invest in people that that you have no data on. So like, what is that framework that you leverage? Yeah, I think I think it's a prescient uh, perspective. The first is, I I, I think a decade from now, um, we'll look back and there will either have been uh, a continuous, uh, what I'll call Cambrian explosion of new managers, or what we're going to have is we're going to have uh, a lot of a lot of people who raised a fund or maybe two, but then uh, weren't able to build a firm around it. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but you know we'll know a decade, fifteen years from now. And so we're in a zone, and and you know Lindell is I think more probably more articulate than me about this is where it's extremely difficult to tell the difference between any number of first time managers. Um, you know, the just the sheer volume of people raising funds under $50 million that have whatever their strategy is, the strategies are, you know, they're 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 rarely not compelling, right? It's most <laughs> of the time they're compelling, but they're unpro- they're unproven. And many yeah. of them, if you took the name of the firm off, <laughs> right, literally took the name of the firm off and stuck 10 of them on a table, you couldn't <laughs> you could you didn't know what they were. Right, they all look the same, and so you know that that's a foundational issue. And so then it really comes back to, um, you know, the, con- the the question of how do you evaluate that? Over time, the way you evaluate that is, uh, I think, based on uh, the way we would like to be evaluated, which is, did we stick to our strategy, and did our strategy generate meaningful returns? And the only way you can evaluate that is over time. So at the beginning, what you're doing is you're saying, do I believe that the strategy is interesting? And do I believe that these VCs uh, can execute their strategy? And, you know, do we want to be uh, investors in these VCs? So the, you know, do we want to be investors in these VCs? And, and frankly, the other direction, do they, do they want us to be investors in their firm still applies, right? That transfers from... Mm. VC uh, to fund investing for us. And, you know, it's, it's in the category of life is too short. Like you want to work with people you want to work with. And if that's one of your highest values, then, uh, you know, filter based on that. Um, the other side of it, though, is really you're evaluating a prospective ability to generate outsized returns on a particular strategy. And when those strategies are hard to be separate from others, it becomes very hard to make those choices. Uh, well, thanks. But so if as venture shifting, you think that the actual um, model and mechanics of venture need to shift as well? Um, there's talks of like, oh, new managers shouldn't charge carry or they should charge a lot of carry because it's small funds. Uh, there's everything and anything that was kind of uh, 
you know, given or developed in, in, you know, generations of you've been investing is now up for debate in some ways, not because it didn't work. It's just because there is so much out there, so much capital out there, so much access out there that uh, people are trying to invent many, you know, parts of this, uh, of this uh, equation. So what, what is your thinking around that? Like, as the as the thousand and one fund manager emerges, um, first of all, do you you know do you think they should just go home, be a founder, do do something else, or do you think that um, you know if they do choose to go down this path, there is needs to be innovation around thinking and strategy and thesis and all of that, but then also in terms of like the structure and the team or any of that is you know do you do you kind of wonder about that? Uh, I think I think the notion of potential and actual change or innovation in the way venture capital works is um, not a new theme. Um, there's a cliche that you hear over and over again about how uninnovative venture capital is, <laughs> um, and I, I would suggest that it's a little bit misstated. Which is what actually exists is this incredible ability to forget the things that you tried that didn't work. And uh, if you look at many of the things that people are doing today in 2017, whether it's around how firms are organized, whether it's uh, new managers, whether it's uh, uh, aggregating what used to be angel money, um, whether it's trying to find rapid entry into uh, liquidity, uh, or liquidity type situations, ICOs would be an example of that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Or alternative funding strategies, ICOs would be an example of that. Um, if you just go back to 1999, right, there, there were lots of firms that had many operating partners and many recruiting partners, and you know the content strategies were different, but they had definitely had marketing partners and marketing activity. Um, you know, looking at the public markets in that time period in a lot of in a lot of ways was very similar to this sort of rapid liquidity approach where companies were going public very early, well before they had established businesses at valuations that were very high and were able to raise lots of money. So I think there's lots of different things that get tried along the way. Um, uh, some a few of them work and generate structural change. Many of them, don't. Some of them fall in the category of highly speculative. And for anybody that's been doing venture capital for a long time, if you're if you want to be a speculator, I'd suggest that there's lots better places to play, right? Playing mm-hmm. in the public markets, being a hedge fund, you know, if you want to be a speculator, speculate on currency. Like it's really hard in the context of company creation because there's so many other challenges around what you're trying to do. That said, I I embrace all this stuff. I think that um, you know Angel List has been a, and and Naval and his gang have been a great provocateur of many different things. I think you know the impact that Angel List has had on both new company creation as well as um, the ability for people to invest at uh, seed stages in in high quality and curated companies is significant. You know, if you look at the accelerator phenomena, you know, I'm one of the co-founders of Techstars. You know, it's a totally different model for uh, company creation and, and investment at the seed level. Um, I'd suggest that it's been 
you know, incredibly powerful and, and very, very successful uh, from Techstars frame of reference and hopefully from the frame of reference of many of the, uh, the founders that have had companies that have been involved in Techstars. So I think these innovations happen continually. And I, the, the issue, I think, for so many investors is, you know, you have a classic innovator incumbent phenomena, right? The incumbents would prefer in a lot of ways that there was no change. Um, and new entrants and innovators, uh, the whole reason they exist is they're trying to, you know, pro promulgate change. And th that's a pretty healthy ecosystem. Like, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I was going to say, yeah. la last, last comment I'd make on this is, I think the decision as to whether somebody should be an entrepreneur or be an investor is a very personal decision. And, um, you know, I, I uh, was CEO of my company for seven years. I was, I was a, uh, a successful CEO. I was effective. I think I was a pretty good CEO. Um, uh, over time, when I reflected, I didn't know this in year seven, but maybe another five years later, I realized I didn't like the job very much. Um, I didn't like the job of CEO. I have many friends who love being CEO. They right. love that job. And so if I gave advice to somebody who was thinking about being an investor, um, and let's assume that they'd previously been a founder somewhere, whether they were CEO or not, is to make to, to ask the question, is this a job I want? Um, I know many people who have started making angel investments and they realize, you know what, I'd much rather be the CEO or I'd much rather be a founder of one company than spread across a bunch of different companies. And I, I think that's the most important question to, to ask yourself is, you know, what job do you want to be doing? What role do you want to be playing in this in this uh, dynamic. The cool thing when I talk to veterans such as yourself um, is I can just ask you, with the 99 time era, when all this similar movements were happening in investing, is there something new managers can learn from that time frame that you noticed that, that people are missing out on right now? Because most, most managers these days are, are younger and more, more uh, newer entrants in the tech industry, I would say. Well, probably a couple of things I wish I had known and, and, and really forced myself to think about in 1999 and 2000. Um, one is this idea of taking a very long-term view. Um, I now carry around with me, I, I wrote about it in Startup Communities, this idea that you should have at least a 20-year view on what you're doing looking forward. So if you have a short-term view, a year, two years, three years, you, you obviously have to have a, a short-term execution plan. But if your view of what you're doing is very short-term, um, I, I think I'm, I suggest that you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, the second is there, the conventional wisdom, uh, whether it's rational or irrational, starts to dominate. And so as there's more momentum around certain things, more people do it. As more people do it, if it's not rational, effective, or good, uh, the amount at stake that then ultimately fails is bigger. If it's a good thing, the more people doing that same thing, in a lot of cases, the economics associated with it get less good. It gets more expensive. Yep. Prices go up. Right? It's classic, you know, economics one hundred and one, supply and demand mm -hmm. dynamics. But what happens is when you're in the middle of it. On either side of the curve, the side of the curve where things are going up in a very positive way or the side of the curve where things are going down in a very rapid fashion, 
you just get swept up in the momentum of what everything is happening and you're reactive rather than thoughtful with this long-term view of what you're trying to do. And, you know, reflecting on my own experience in the late nineties and thinking about very experienced VCs who had been through, you know, much more, you know, cycles than I had. If you think of 1999, effectively, while well, I've done three years as an angel investor, I'd only done three years as a venture investor at that point. Um, many of the people that had been, you know, 15, 20 years of doing this may got caught up in exactly the same stuff. And even though there was part of their brain saying, this doesn't feel right, this isn't rational, this isn't going to end well, they almost couldn't help themselves but participate in that dynamic. So a big part of it is, is being a clear thinker. It's not necessarily being contrarian. I'm not going to make the argument that the right answer is to do the opposite of what everybody else is doing, but it's to have a long view on what you're trying to accomplish and know that on that long view, the ups and downs that you're going to have uh, will get you know stretched out over this long period of time versus you'll just be living in these big ups and big downs. The last, the, the last I'd say on that is um, uh, I learned some painful lessons uh, uh, both as an operator in companies that I co-founded as well as an investor. And the, the cliche is it's not money until you can buy beer with it. And, you know, this, this idea that it doesn't matter what it says on paper uh, unless, it's, uh, unless it's actually, you know, money that you can use to buy something. And I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say a fiat currency because you can, of course, take Bitcoin and, and convert it to cash and buy stuff with Bitcoin. And you could buy things with Bitcoin now, right? But until you can actually translate it into something that has liquidity, uh, it's still not real. And I saw so many people start acting like, living like, believing, spending their money like it was actually money that they had when it was merely paper value. And the paper value can disappear very, very quickly. And so constructing your life, again, with this 20-year view and living in the context of the actual resources you have versus the you know, on paper gains that you think you have is a much more satisfying thing because as things move around up and down, it doesn't change your fundamental behavior. And so being deliberate about that, I guess, is the word I would use, uh, is, is, is super important. Um, we, I, mean, I have so many questions. I guess the last question I will ask because we're running into the time is, so how does one build a franchise and or demonstrate that they want to build a franchise uh, when they're on their fund one or two? Well, uh, I think the only way you, the way you build a franchise, it's a little bit of a, uh, a, a cheap out as an answer is to build one. And it takes time. <laughs> right. I mean, we're you know, we started Foundry in 2007. It's 2017. We're 10 years in. Um, you know, we still we still feel pretty young at this. And I think you just have to recognize that it takes a long time. And that success is not guaranteed also to define what success means, right? For us, success was not adding a bunch of partners, building a big organization, you know, building increasingly large funds. That, that was not how we defined success. And, you know, for the first 10 years, um, effectively, every one of our funds was the same size. And uh, we raised a fund every three years and we didn't add any people. 
and you know at about you know year nine and change almost year 10 uh we we finally added uh lindell because we added a piece to our strategy that we were already doing ourselves personally but we decided to institutionalize it so being really clear about what your goal is over that long period of time and by the way that comment was our strategy. It doesn't mean that it's not a it's a bad strategy to try to add lots of people and raise lots more money. That that's a strategy too. Um, but it's to to be very clear about what you're trying to do, and then execute on it over a long period of time, regardless of what's happening exogenously to you. Well, Brad, um, we're out of time, but thank you so much. How do people follow you um, on Twitter, or what's the best way to reach out to you? The best way to reach me is email brad at feld.com. And, uh, you know, I write a blog 20 times a month at uh, uh, feld.com. So that's a good place to follow me. And then uh, Twitter is at bfeld. Well, thank you so much for all your wisdom on the podcast and, and just overall for sharing everything. Um, really appreciate having you here. Totally my pleasure, Shruti.